1: Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning for a whole hour, Corey Dolgan, professor of sociology and author. A new book, Kill It to Save It, an autopsy of capitalism's triumph over democracy. Let's get right to work and say hello to Corey Dolgan. Good morning, Corey.
2: Good morning, Peter. How are you?
1: I'm fine. All right. Kill it to save it. Would you say the Trump administration supports your thesis or not? <laughs> um, well,
2: I'm not sure if they support it as far as um, they, uh, they think it's true, um, <laughs> but I think I couldn't have asked for a more crystallized um, uh, uh, example of what I'm talking about than uh, the Trump administration and their policies thus far.
1: All right. I have to ask the next question and censor myself in the process. <laughs> what the blip happened that we got Donald Trump? What's your thesis?
2: Well, um, uh, let, let me start uh, with the thesis by saying that the book was primarily written with the assumption that Hillary Clinton would be our next president. Sure. Um, and and luckily for me, I guess, the, that I, I wasn't quite finished by the time of the election. And so um, I was able to make a few changes. But unfortunately, there weren't that many changes that needed to be made. And so um you know what what went wrong really is is the uh, is the question that i lead the book off with and 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 the the time frame i'm using really is is my own life beginning in the early 1960s and the sense that uh, america was a place that was getting progressively better and that uh, the social movements of the 60s the new deal the labor movement had created a progressive um, you know, public welfare state in which things continued to get better, and the more people organized and pressed for policies that that made life better for poor working and middle-class people, the more we seemed to be moving in that direction. And really, in the nineteen late 1970s and early 1980s, we kind of hit a U-turn, uh, and I think we've been going backwards ever since. What went wrong? I would suggest that we became a nation not so much interested in the public good and the public welfare, but one that became dominated by corporate interests w- under the guise of individual liberty.
1: Now, clearly you're not happy with the corporate's influence on democracy, but it takes money to get elected.
2: Which, which is undemocratic in and of itself. So, you know, from, from, the, from the moment that democracy itself... Is based on the ability to raise money. um, Is the moment that we start to lose uh, democracy, and um, Citizens United uh, may have been a very large nail, but really, you know, is the proverbial last nail in the coffin of democracy.
1: Mm. Why?
2: Well, it, it. it takes away even the guise of the ability for, um, you know, someone to uh, put together a coalition of people and organize on the grassroots level. Um, you know, my, one of my favorite examples was the uh, former senator, uh, the late Paul Wellstone from Minnesota, who was able to kind of create an upstart bid for the Senate based on his ability to, uh, to do grassroots organizing. Um, but the amount of money that Citizens United has, um, has unleashed, uh, has made bids like that, um, you know, relatively, if not completely impossible. But the worst part of the money in politics nowadays is what the Koch brothers have wrought and the notion that very, very wealthy people are now pouring millions and millions of dollars into local elections. And so... If there was one bastion of democracy, as I suggest in the book, um, people really believe that in local elections and statewide elections in county elections, uh, cities, one could still have the sense that one's vote counted um, and that you could really organize and with enough political will and, and strategic acumen, you could actually make a difference on a local political level. But with the money the Koch brothers have poured in to states like Virginia and elsewhere, um, we're finding that even state and local governments are moving further to the right, further uh, becoming corporate pocketed candidates. And the idea of democracy uh, is dying a very rapid death.
1: But what about moveon.org?
2: Well, again, I think moveon.org was one of those examples where – previous to Citizens United, uh, one could try to pool money together to make a difference. Um, and I actually should say that, you know, uh, even beyond MoveOn.org, which I think in, in some ways has has uh, kind of not, not been the, 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 the real progressive left force that, that it once uh, pretended to be, um, you know, Bernie Sanders' campaign was – um, was, I'm hoping, something that's not an anomaly. Um, but certainly Sanders showed that you could, in fact, raise a lot of money, even with a progressive campaign. Um, but, you know, it, it, it was it's done as a, um, how should I put it? it, it's done as a last-ditch effort to spend a tremendous amount of time and effort to try and raise the money to even, you know, make a slight difference. And I think the ability for uh candidate like Hillary Clinton to dominate the Democratic Party machine um, demonstrated that even the success of someone like a Bernie Sanders has its limitations within the two-party system.
1: Now, it interests me that you wrote this book initially with Hillary's win in mind. What was there about Hillary that you made you want to write the book?
2: Well, I wouldn't say Hillary in particular. Um, I think she was just um, the kind of more most recent incantation of it, but... You know, the, the kill it to save it framework for policymaking is one that essentially um, focuses on the ways in which the private sector has dominated not only the actual policies that have been made, but also the ways we think about how we make policy. In particular, I would say that the Democratic Party um, in its loss to Ronald Reagan um, and, and then eventually George Bush Um, developed uh, the Democratic Leadership uh, Council, and the DLC's triangulation strategy was always about um, how do we move further to the right to try and gain um, enough support, votes, and money that we will become the dominant party in American politics. And while I don't think they ever became the dominant party, they certainly were able to put together coalitions to win major elections. And primarily they did that by becoming the other corporate-pocketed party. And so if you look at the policies that came out of the first Clinton uh, and then the Obama administration and the kinds of policies that Hillary Clinton promoted, um, they were simply a, a, a more liberal version of what the Republicans had been offering the country for a generation. So, you know, if you think about Obamacare, Obamacare itself was a Republican policy. Um, if uh, we look at educational policy under Obama especially, we're looking at a really pro-privatization, pro-charter uh, strategy for education that's been proven pretty ineffective except for making a lot of money for corporations. So so much of the policies that even the Democrats have been promoting for the last uh, few decades, um, I would argue, are representative of capitalism's triumph over democracy.
1: Well, just to use education as an example, though, um, privatization may be making money for corporations and not very effective, but they seem like they're just as effective, if not more effective, than public education.
2: Yeah. Well, the research is pretty clear that that's not true. Um, And that um, it's not to say that public education is doing very well. It's just that charter schools are not doing any better. And um, while there are certain charter schools in particular places that may be successful, um, the you know the research is pretty clear that uh, that even test scores um, aren't aren't uh, aren't being raised very high in the majority of them. And as I argue in the book, the test scores themselves are not very good indicators anyway of good education. And the movement, in fact, towards looking at um, high-stakes testing as a way of measuring education is particularly flawed. Um, and so even the idea that the Obama administration had you know, kind of glommed on to the idea of high-stakes testing, which is something that's being promoted by places like the Gates Foundation and other um, very large and very wealthy um, interests, suggests that, you know, we've kind of moved away from thinking about education as, um, a, a, as a way to train people for democracy and really as simply a way to train people for a job. And that kind of corporatization of, of education, both K-12 through and higher ed, um, is also, I think, a sign of, uh, of capitalism's triumph.
1: But are we just training people for jobs? Is it possible to train people for both
2: Oh, certainly. Um, it is. Uh, the irony is that, you know, I, as, a, as a teacher myself, you know, um, we used to argue that if we teach students how to think, read, write, uh, and compute, um, those skills are transferable anywhere in the workforce. Um, but if we train people simply to um, be, uh, you know, uh, on time uh, and, and obey the, the boss and how to enter data, and how to do some of the most basic elements of contemporary uh, economic production, we're not necessarily training them to be critical thinkers. And so I I would say we should be erring on the side of really teaching people how to think critically and and, and read critically and and write well and communicate and express themselves before we worry about what job they're going to get.
1: Okay. um, What do we do? (laughs)
2: Um, well, I mean, the first thing we need to do, uh, aside from read the book, um, is to start, um, is, is to start trying to piece together a story and start working together with people in our communities based on a much more, um, how should I put it, much more critical sense of what we get through the media and through our our politics, but also trusting a little bit more of what used to be, I think, a more prevalent instinct, which is that we actually do a lot better when we work together in our local communities than if we think the other people in our communities are the reason we have problems. And, you know, one of the reasons why I say Donald Trump really crystallized so much of what um you know making an argument about in the book is that trump really succeeded in convincing people that um they could succeed individually and that their success would, would be based on making sure that other people didn't succeed and that means getting rid of all the quote unquote other people who don't belong in this country and what we should be doing is exactly the opposite I think our great strength comes when we work together with people who are different from ourselves, and we develop the kind of uh, ways of thinking and talking about our communities that are inclusive and empowering, as opposed to uh, being divisive and uh, ultimately powerless.
1: And you're listening to WIP Sunday on ninety-four WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning is Corey Dolgan. A professor of sociology, now author, Kill It to Save It, an autopsy of capitalism's triumph over democracy. Now, Corey, I have to confess I gotta give a little bit to capitalism here. Gotta run some commercial <laughs> gotta run some commercials. We'll be back in just a bit. Now stay with me. The WIP Time 715. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, author, academic Corey Dolgan. His new book, Kill It to Save It, an Autopsy. Of capitalism's triumph over democracy. All right, Corley, Corey, it's time for a little self-criticism here. You talked. Sure. About, you talked about media. Um, yes. The four major outlets for media, all corporate-owned, is that, and all major corporations. Bad thing. I'm sorry. The the last part. Is it a bad thing? Yes. Why?
2: Absolutely. Um, well, you know, and, and of course they a lot of great, great, great uh, books that, that kind of uh, track this. The, the work of um, Bob McChesney comes to mind. Um, if the only media outlets are dominated by um, the profit motive, and in particular now being consolidated into just a few hands, then it would be incredibly naive to think that the corporations that own the media don't have an interest in presenting a uh, not just an ideology you know but certainly an analysis of the world that supports their interests and so um, I think you'll find that while there might be pockets um, of uh, of critical voices in the media, that even critique itself has become somewhat of a sporting event, somewhat of a reality television series, Um, you know. So uh, what we get on the level of critique now about what's happening in politics is essentially all Russia all the time. And as I argued last night um, with some folks at a book talk here in Massachusetts, was I, I think we're doing a disservice to the problems that exist around us if we focus solely on the issue of Russian collusion in our election. And that isn't to say that such a, you know, such a possibility uh, and now probability isn't important. But, again, even had Hillary Clinton won, I think the, the fundamental uh, problems that we face as a country and as a planet uh, would, would still be in full swing. And so we, we need a media that, that's highly um, inventive highly committed to the kinds of journalistic investigations uh, and, and analyses that would give people the tools they need to participate um, actively and intelligently in politics, and instead we get uh, you know, a very, a very watered-down version of a kind of sporting event where it's all about the two parties competing for power, and I just don't think we get the tools we need because of the corporate media
1: but all Russia all the time if it's <laughs> if it's proven it's going to have a tremendous effect on what happens in this country
2: um well, you know, I mean, my, my first question would be how, right? Because um, the the biggest – look, I, I definitely want to know if we're being run by gangsters, right? And I wouldn't I – w- I won't be surprised to find out, you know, that there's collusion at the highest levels and that, you know, this has always been Trump's kind of modus operandi, uh, which is, you know, kind of gangster economics um, just on a high scale or the highest of scales. But, um, you know – my 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 sense of of our politics in this country, is, uh, and and knowing how how the government works a little bit, is that if Trump gets impeached, we have Mike Pence, um, and you know Mike Pence brings his own kind of thuggery into office, um, and you know in fact Pence might be even more uh, able to usher in things like the Paul Ryan budget, uh, which is a, a budget for corporate thievery. So. You know, my sense that um, all Russia all the time, what it means is that ultimately we may be in for, you know, a big shell game in which we get rid of the Trump thugs and we bring in some of the worst of Christian fundamentalism and, and corporate paid hacks.
1: Unless it's also proven that Mike Pence was involved, but that's another discussion. I think
2: I've seen that meme on Facebook, and uh, eventually, you know, you get down into, like, the third bench of the Republican Party, and, and it's still rotten.
1: All right. What do you think about social media and its influence on this whole issue?
2: Oh, wow. That's a big question, Peter. Um, you know, our, our history is one that we don't go backwards when it comes to technology, Uh, And and um, you know maybe the medium is the message, but in this particular case, we do have evidence of social media um, providing excellent opportunities for people to uh, mobilize. Um, I think the issue has been that uh, for for people uh, on the left and for progressives who are trying to organize for social change, and whether that's in this country or abroad, and you know the Arab Spring comes to mind. Social media is a great place for mobilization. It's not always the best place for organization. And so the, we, we've been able to mobilize masses of people to go places and participate in demonstrations uh, in a in, in, uh, way much more rapid than in the past. But we're not, I don't know that the depth of, of, uh, of both kind of educating uh, uh, an active movement and getting people to commit passionately to those movements um, is as you know is as deep as it has been because of social media, so I think people partic- think they 're participating in social movements through social media when in fact, I would argue social media is much more of a tool um, for mobilization than it is a serious way for organizing but the flip side of that, which is the domination of social media in our moment to moment lives, i think is is a is a real detractor from our ability to spend the time that's necessary uh, when it comes to kind of reflecting and you know bringing in information from diverse places uh, as the fake news um, issue has has reared its uh, its head during this past election. you know, we realized that. It's, it gets harder and harder to sift through the sources of media, so people tend to take a lot of shortcuts, and those shortcuts often um, mean that people are, are taking at face value uh, information that's coming from sources they really know very little about.
1: As old adage says, if I've seen it in the New York Times, it must be true.
2: Right, and that was always problematic, but we find out that you know, the New York Times is still slightly better than, um, you know, alt-right, than the alt-right Breitbart news.
1: And also social media cuts both ways. Donald That's Trump right. uses Twitter very effectively.
2: No, no, absolutely. That's right. Which, again, is why it's a tool. I mean, you know, you can use a hammer to build a house or you can use a hammer, you know, to kill someone. And, you know, I think, I think social media uh, and all of its, all of its uh, uh, genres um, are very effective tools uh, for mobilizing, but you know, you can mobilize the right or the left. So I don't see it as a panacea. Um, I see it as a problem and probably a more substantial problem than it is um, a positive in the sense that I also think it makes it harder for people to, to kind of escape whatever is trending um, on Facebook. So um, it definitely has those problematic features, but I wouldn't want to deny, you know, again, as a tool that it can be incredibly powerful.
1: Back to media for a minute, we talked about um, the major media being owned by big corporations. aren't we on some level hoping that the major media corporations are going to stay on the side of the angels and not the devils
2: <laughs> um, well but and, and one of the things that I would argue in the, and, and I do in the book is that um, you know I don't see capitalism as a tool <laughs> that can go both ways um, in in the sense that Uh, yes, I think we would hope that the major media corporations might stay on the side of of good, Um, but I'm not quite sure that just because um, they're critiquing Trump that means they're necessarily good. And again, I would say, you know, I would like to see much more substantial effort placed um, not on 24-7 coverage of the latest indictment. Um, What I'd really like to see is... A much more sophisticated analysis of what happens when, you know, elections from local dog catcher on up are being determined by the amount of money being spent, and I think we'll, we hear a lot of. Well, we don't even hear a lot of talk, actually, about Citizens United anymore in the media. Things like that seem to have taken not just a backseat, but, you know, uh, a, an outhouse to American political coverage in the media today. So I think, we, I, I think we can pressure the media to do a better job. I think we have to pressure uh, major corporations to do a better job. But I don't think that that ought to be um, the kind of fundamental analysis behind our politics as we try to really change the institutional landscape, so that private interests don't control public media.
1: But even private interests very often have stockholders, and stockholders control the private interests, don't they? No.
2: I mean, I mean to be honest, um, if you look at you know most major corporations, the the stockholders are a very small percentage of our national public when it comes to the, the amount of ownership necessary to, uh, to to move corporations. There have been moments in history where um, stockholders have been able to organize and actually make a, a progressive difference, but those are incredibly rare. And even when you get, you know, like labor unions, pension funds as stockholders so that they actually own a considerable enough share to make a difference, um, even that is, is is moving upstream, and most of those – Kind of major, slightly more progressive uh, institutions um, end up with their own, uh, you know, revenue building and profit motive as their number one, uh, uh, number one goal. So no, I don't see the idea of stockholders in major corporations as much of a demo, as much of a de- democracy. Um, and those, you know, those corporations tend to support the candidates who support um, the policies that will make them the most money. And that, that means, again, that we're back to capitalism's triumph over democracy.
1: I keep getting stuck in the capitalist swamp of how do we get out of it and bring democracy back, of the people, by the people.
2: Well, I, I think that first we probably um, have to uh, admit at a certain level that capitalism as a system um, is anathema to democracy as a system. And whether or not, you know, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a socialist, and, and I think that socialism as an idea and a set of practices um, builds from the notion that w- what's good for people is the most important uh, uh, motive, not making a profit. I think the idea that through free markets and competition, we would end up creating a better world for, uh, for everyone um, was only true in relation to what came before it, which was feudalism. So I think that once we recognize that democracy means that people have the power and, and people have to have the power to make policies that are in the best interests of the general public, that's going to mi- mitigate the power of capitalism to determine these, these outcomes. Whether capitalism exists in some form or other, whether people are um, free to be entrepreneurs, um, you know, I think that's wonderful. I just don't think that the idea that people, that corporations should be free to make as much profit as they can. um, And as the book lays out in many, many institutions across our uh, landscape, you know, people are making money at the detriment to other people, um, creating products and creating processes that are damaging and even deadly to people. Um, You know, uh, Monsanto is a great example of a company that's made billions and trillions of dollars. Um, off of the harming general public. So these are the kinds of things that I think, you know, a, a, a democracy ought to be better at addressing, but it can't because it's dominated by capitalism.
1: And you're listening to 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, academic author, Corey Dolgan. His new book, Kill It to Save It, An Autopsy of Capitalism's Triumph Over Democracy. And i got to do it again, Corey, so forgive me. More commercials, so stay with me. WIP time, 7.35. And we're back, back with Corey Dolgan, academic author, Kill It to Save It, an autopsy of capitalism's triumph over democracy. Corey, you're talking about organizing. Organizing takes time. Organizing takes money. Most people are so stuck in their lives, there's no time for that stuff.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I think it's a really important point, Peter. And um, the ways in which um, the working class, in particular in this country, has had to kind of speed up their labor is not only a, a symptom of our economic problems, but also a cause of our lack of ability to take the kind of democratic power back. Um, and so. We, we are kind of left fighting in some ways on two fronts, which is not only are people fighting to improve their economic well-being um, by working harder, but they also have to find the time and the the metal to, to do the work collectively it's going to take to change things. But I don't know that it's ever been all that different in the sense that while I think the amount of work most Americans now have to put in and the fact that um, two-parent families um, have two parents working in order to maintain some semblance of a middle-class lifestyle, I think that if you look at the great movements in our history, you'll find that it's not as if um, the conditions were ever easy for people to organize and certainly the, the amount it took the early labor movement when people were working, you know, 12-, 14-hour days, um, they still organized um, and fought for changes in the economic system that through working together and organizing unions, they were able to achieve. Uh, civil rights movement. Uh, You know, it certainly wasn't easy uh, in small hamlets in the South for people to uh, fight the Klan um, and to to really force the American government to establish policies that allowed people just to vote. So it, it certainly is a conundrum, but, you know, these are the things that I argue in the book, it's one of the reasons why the cultural aspects of these things are so important. We have to believe, again, as a country, that we can change things collectively and that it takes collective action to do it. And one of the planks of kill it to save it is a kind of hyper-individualism that suggests um, we're better off when we work as these completely free, unrestrained, individual entrepreneurs. Um, but I would argue it's just the opposite. We actually do much better individually when we work together to build good public schools as opposed to private schools, when we, when we, um, when we build, uh, you know, public uh, health options so that everybody has access to health care, not that hopefully everybody works hard enough and makes enough money to buy their own health care. I think healthcare is a great actually example because, you know, the, the sicker our country gets, the worse off everybody is. And whether you have have health coverage or not, um, the fact of the matter is that, that, that illness and disease knows no class to some degree. And so the sicker that poor people in our country get, the more dangerous it is for everybody. Um, We we fought in Massachusetts for earned sick time, um, which in and of itself, you know, seems to me um, a reform, but not necessarily the kind of reform we need. People ought to just have sick time. They shouldn't have to earn it because most of the people who don't have sick time and can't take days off because they're sick are people who are working in the poorest paid jobs in the service sector, and many of those jobs are serving people who have more money than they do. The last thing you want when you walk into a restaurant is to find out that people in the kitchen can't take days off because they're sick. So this is the kind of relational self-interest that you know that this book is, is, is about in the sense that we really need to think of our general welfare as individuals as completely tied into the general welfare of everybody else.
1: Or to reduce it to a much simpler level, who coughed on Mike's scrambled eggs? <laughs> when no, I went exactly, out for breakfast.
2: That's exactly right. That's exactly right.
1: <clears throat> All right, Corey. The Paris Climate Accords. Yeah, yes. Yeah. An example. I mean, we could talk about big corporations saying pull out and big corporations saying in, which I'm not sure I understand, but we can reduce it to much simpler, Steve, Va- Steve Bannon versus Ivanka Trump. Help me understand what happened.
2: The Paris uh, Accords. um, Well, you know, it's this is one of those times where you'll see that there are divisions within, you know, capitalism itself. Um, Rex Tillerson is probably a good example um, in that, as um, you know, as uh, Exxon Mobil CEO, um, you know, Exxon spent 20 years um, spending uh, millions, if not billions, of dollars to try and muddy the science uh... and obscure the you know the scientific research that demonstrated climate change was real and so you know they've been behind so much of the science denial in this country for decades now that, now they're on board um, and they and as a corporation um, they recognize uh, that climate change is serious and real um, and realize that in their own corporate interests it was actually beneficial to be part of the uh... uh paris accord so You'll find that that many major corporations, even some oil companies, have suggested that the Paris Accords are important. And so you'll find that, there, that the Paris Accords themselves um, should be effective, although aren't perhaps the, the kind of sea change, no pun intended, we really need um, when it comes to environmental sustainability and, and, and anti-climate change policies. But certainly an important step in the right direction, and really most of the world, including major corporations, recognize how important that step was. But for Donald Trump and kind of this other wing of the conservative party, um, even the acceptance of climate change, of scientifically driven policies, um, threatens the idea that... um, that the, the master narrative is always what's good for, for, for profit in the short run. And so I think what we're looking at now when it comes to the corporations that support um, climate change policies as opposed to corporations that don't is we're really seeing a division between kind of long-term corporate thinking and short-term corporate thinking. And Donald Trump has always been the shortest-term thinker in the corporate world.
1: But we can also reduce it to Steve Bannon, who wants to tear down everything, at least that's what he's been accused of, and Ivanka Trump, who wants to see her children, Donald's grandchildren, grow up in a healthy environment.
2: No, that's right. That, that, that's right. Um, there, you know, there, there is um, – well, you know, Bannon's an interesting character in, in his kind of ideological purity, right? I mean, there is he, – he does believe that chaos is the ultimate um, uh, power grab. Right, um, and uh, you know, watching uh, the new season of House of Cards um, has reminded me that uh, you know that that, that, that that Bannon kind of represents this dystopian figure who's existed for a long time uh, in in our American political psyche. Um, you know, Bannon believes that you know that race wars will uh, will ultimately bring about um, you know the most powerful of uh, of fascist dictatorships. Um, it, it almost goes back to uh, Sinclair Lewis's uh, you know It can't happen here." Um, this notion that we can really create the kind of dictatorship we want in this country if we can create this level of chaos, um, and and Bannon certainly is a promoter of that. Uh, but I but ultimately, I think think that his interests are, are very limited and while he's able to tap into a lot of paranoia and fear um, he does so in a really remarkable way which is his success is that he's able to promote a very limited sense of, um, of, of uh, kind of white supremacist corporate power with these kind of mainstream uh, American values around things like uh, gun ownership you know, or uh, or again, free markets, which in the end I, d- I don't know that Bannon uh, would be a big supporter of mass gun ownership. Um, you know, g- given the fact that uh, that dictatorships don't do well with such things.
1: All right, we have a caller this morning. Let's say good morning to James from West Philadelphia. James, you're on the air. What's your question or comment, yeah, please? Good
3: morning, uh, Pina, and your your author. Uh, I don't. Uh, last name is Jogen. Yes. Uh, call me Corey. Okay, Corey. Well, I'll call you Corey. I, I've been listening to you, and uh, I don't know if you – are Are you familiar with the work of a gentleman, uh, Jonathan Perkins? Mm, no. Jonathan Perkins is a, a man who wrote a book. Uh, I, Peter might be familiar with him. He wrote Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Um, oh, sure, sure, sure. I know the right. book. Right. Well, anyway, I, I've become profoundly influenced by him over the past few years because i read e- e- Economic Hitman and also Hoodwink. And one of, mm. that he's, he, one of the things that Perkins, uh, is, he's somebody who's sort of turned, uh, well, he's become a uh, what I would call a, um, he, he, he's turned against the system that, that has been set up. And what he's uh, what he's shown me is that that the United States, uh, when it comes to capitalism and democracy we 've been sort of convinced that well if in order to have democracy uh, you need capitalism what, what and what Perkins has shown me is in his reading his stuff is that the United States doesn't seem to care about necessarily your form of government as long as they can install help install uh, capitalism in a country uh, it can be an authoritarian br- brutal regime uh, in right. a particular government but as long as as long as they can set up capitalism, that it's it's okay. And, mm-hmm. and when I was reading his stuff, it, it's like a light went off in my mind because growing up I've always been convinced, well, capitalism and democracy go together like a hand and glove. But what Perkins shows in his work uh, is that, you know, yeah, capital, if it comes down to choosing the style of government and economic system that the United States will choose the economic system over the style of government and they prove it over and over again and helping to set up brutal, uh, fascist regimes uh in the world, uh in South America, Central America. Uh but again, as long as they're able to set up a veneer of capitalism that uh, the the form of government doesn't really matter. And I want you to comment on that.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, um, you know, it, it's a great book, and, and you know, you very eloquently um, not not only described one of the major themes of the book, but really one of the major themes of American history. Um, and I mean, I mean, the the issue to me in, in this book, um, because I do think there there are some excellent books about it, is why it is, in fact, that Americans believe differently right? In other words, what you've laid out and what you came to think about, you know, I would want to turn one of the questions back to you um, after I try to answer your question, which is, why do you think you believed otherwise, right? Why do we think that capitalism and democracy fit hand in glove? And why, in fact, do we allow uh, corporations to not only dominate American politics, which is much of what the book's about, but also our foreign policy? And I think that we, we, as, as quote-unquote Americans, and, and we could get into what it really, you know, means when we say the United States and Americans, you know, for years uh, the U.S. and the Soviet Union carried on a Cold War, um, but one of the things that finally chipped away at a lot of that um, dynamic was that the actual people in the Soviet Union and people in the United States um, started to talk with one another and interact with one another. And this is one of those places where the tools of social media come to play. As technology allowed for more and more of this conversation, it became harder and harder to maintain this kind of Cold War division. Um, And so I do think it is possible um, And books like uh, Confessions of a Hitman and hopefully maybe Kill It to Save It, um, start to help people think differently about how democracy and capitalism as ideas don't fit hand in glove. And in fact, capitalism, and as you suggest, through imperialism and, 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 and foreign policy, um, have dominated uh, the lives of, of the planet. You know, so much of my book is about uh, citizens in the United States, but almost everything I talk about in the book is even worse around the world. And are, so, are, so there, there are some similarities in between your book and his book. Um, and oh, I think uh, absolutely. The, 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 the probably the, the the significant difference. Obviously, I'm I'm not talking from the inside out, which I, right. I think provides he was an insight. In yeah, and in fact, I think, as I recall, I I do think I have uh, I have a, a quote from him in the book. Um, the the. What I'm trying to get at in the book is not only examples of contemporary public policy and institutional policy that demonstrate how um, corporations and and their minion continue to create policies that are actually bad for us. You know, so there's a chapter on food production, industrialized food production, and the work of Michael Pollan and other people have been really important in showing how, in fact, corporate influences has made us less healthy because of the ways they've dominated the production of food in this country. Guys, and so, we're out of time. Oh, I'm sorry. So, But let me just thank you for the call, Jim, and I really think that um, you're, you're, you're hitting the nail right on the head. Uh, Peter, get you should get Jonathan Perkins on as a guest.
1: I'll see if I can find him. Thank you, Jim. Oh, thanks a lot. And it's been WIP Sunday. Thank you to Corey Dolgan. Nothing left to say, but stay tuned for Sunny <laughs> Hill. See you soon.
0: How powerful is Cox Internet?